This is Selected Wisdom. I'm Clint Watts. In 2006, I was starting up a counterterrorism research and training program when I received a call from my smartest colleague on Al-Qaeda's recent global terror campaigns. He said to me, you've got to read this book, Looming Tower, by Lawrence Wright. It's the best thing I've read. Soon after, I bought boxes of the book for everyone on my team. I reached out to Mr. Wright to come and speak at events with the FBI and police forces, and to my surprise, he agreed. He provided wisdom to audiences of all types, and I had the great fortune of being his driver between airports and auditoriums. Our conversations on the road were far-ranging, always insightful, and provided much-needed guidance to me as I sought to start publicly writing for the first time. Lawrence Wright is an author, screenwriter, playwright, and a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. His book, The Looming Tower, won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. Along with being a prolific writer, Lawrence has written and starred in several theatrical productions and even plays keyboard in an Austin-based blues band. Here's my discussion with Lawrence Wright. You were one of the first people, I mean, I knew about Austin from my buddies who were at Fort Hood, but you were one of the first people I knew that like lived in Austin. And now everybody I know lives in Austin or is moving to Austin. So yeah, what's going on in Austin? It's, it's nuts. You know, we never had celebrities. We never had billionaires and now we're overrun with them. And, um, you know, a friend of mine, it lives in my neighborhood, it has a nice house, you know, 10 blocks away. And uh, they were at dinner one night and there's a knock on the door and it was Emma Stone and uh, wanted to buy his house. And he was a real estate developer. So he thought, well, okay. So, uh, you know, but, you know, this is the sort of thing that's happening around here. And, you know, there are a lot of them are tax refugees. And then there's the climate change refugees. So, People are evacuating coastal areas and they're moving inland. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me, Austin, because going back to uh, belief, right? Now, I will get that to that in a second with you, but Matthew McConaughey is there and he's kind of a cult leader yeah. in his own right now. He calls himself minister of culture. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I, we were looking because yeah. my team does a lot of social media stuff and we were looking at like fastest growing broadcasts on YouTube. Matthew McConaughey is destroying it. I mean, just massive. You know, he, he came in, he started, takes off. Then Joe Rogan yeah. is, is down there now. Elon Musk. Yeah. And from what I understand, I don't know if it's correct at the moment, it's Alex Jones. So you got four people that have massive following, you know, cult-like followings in terms of their audience and they're all in the same town. I just wondered how it felt there because it probably was not the Austin, Texas that you knew, you know, when you were starting through there. When I moved here, you know, I went to work for Texas Monthly in 1980. And I had a friend who was, a, a, you know, a rising young writer, editor, and people would come down from New York to recruit him. And one of the editors called and said, now, do you have an airport down there? <laughs> and he, oh yes, ma'am, we do have an airport. Said, How will I find you? And he said, Well, there are two buildings downtown. There's a black one and a gold one, and we're in the black one. Which was kind of true. 
you know, there were only two two buildings downtown that had more than, say, eight stories. One was the Austin National Bank building, which was black. And, you know, that's where Texas Monthly was. Now you you look at Austin, I've forgotten how many cranes there were still, but they're building 6,000 square feet of office space downtown at a place, at a time when, you know, people are evacuating the offices. Right. But apparently they feel a need to add that much more office space in downtown Austin. So has it changed it dramatically in terms of just the culture of Austin, I'm assuming? Or, you know, is it still kind of keep the Austin charm and they just adapt to it? Well, that's what Matthews McConaughey's object of being the minister of culture. He wants to keep Austin weird. <laughs> he wants to, you know, hang on to what made Austin special. And I do, too. Although I've met a lot of these newcomers and I'm pretty much glad they're here. There's some very interesting people moving to Austin. And uh, I think it it's the destiny of Austin to become a great city. One of my pastimes is putting up statues in Austin. And uh, so raising money in Austin in the 80s and 90s was really hard to do. It wasn't until the Michael Dell and, you know, the Dellionaires came along right. that there was any money. It was a, it was a city of teachers and bureaucrats, the University of Texas and the Capitol. That, those were the anchors of the economy. But the neighborhood we live in now was really kind of, you know, the professoriate lived in our neighborhood. And there were a lot of one and two bedroom bungalows and they're all being scraped, you know, for these McMansions right. and it's change and change is always uncomfortable. But I, I think in most respects, it's going in a good direction. Texas kind of got this frontier-like history that's so amazing, right? Like all these things going on. But at the same point, like today, it's still, it is, it seems like it's the frontier in American politics and culture and tech and a lot of things right now. Like it, I, I would have never guessed that we'd be so focused on Texas, you know, when I was a kid, yeah. sort of the, I wonder how you felt about that or why you think those changes have come. Like it almost became a purple state, but yet they have abortion ban issues, you know, different sorts of legislations pushing through. You've got Elon Musk, who's the head of this massive, you know, tech innovation, and then energy is freezing up and, you know, infrastructure is, is not there in, at certain times. How does that all come about in Texas? Well, it's a very turbulent period in Texas history. And uh, I, I think a creative one as well. All the cities in Texas are blue. And so, you know, that is countered by many of the suburbs and, and the rest of the state that's this more agrarian. Texas is a conservative state. I'm not trying to say it's not. Right. But it's not nearly as conservative as the rabid people who represent it right now. And uh, so that creates a dissonance in our politics. And there's, among the political elite, and I'm, I'm including mainly, you know, all of the most conspicuous Republicans, our governor, Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor uh, Dan Patrick, Ted Cruz, they hate, they hate the cities. I, I had a conversation with one of those gentlemen. It was a long lunch off the record, but I said, you know, I wish that you would just say something nice about Austin because right. you, you know, you and your colleagues, you're always shitting on it. And yet by your own standards, 
employment, education, entrepreneurialism, tourism. It's the most successful city in the state, if not the country. It's amazing what's going on in Austin. The city's well run, it's attractive, but you're running it down all the time. And I think it hurts the state and it creates this kind of disunion that we don't need at a state level. We got enough of it nationally. So that brings me back. So uh, according to Wikipedia, which may or may not be correct, <laughs> but I was reviewing on the plane flying. So am I correct? You were born in o Oklahoma City? Right. And then how did you make your way from there to Austin? You said you had a job, but where were you in between? Well, in, you know, we lived in, my dad was an itinerant banker. And so he had been in World War II in Korea and he had been a lawyer, but he came back and decided he wanted to be a banker. I think that's because he grew up on the Dust Bowl in Kansas. And when he was 12 years old, his father took him into the bank to help him negotiate the crop loan. And I think that there was this transfer of power <laughs> that was, that my father observed. So eventually he became a banker and it went through Abilene, Texas, and then wound up in Dallas in a little bank in a strip shopping center in East Dallas, which he made into quite a force. But that's where, you know, I went to high school. And then I went to Tulane University in New Orleans. And after that, you know, Vietnam was going on and I was a conscientious objector and I had to do two years of alternative service. You had to go somewhere 50 miles from home and it had to pay very little. And it had to be nominally in the interest of the United States. Those were the requirements. I went to New York thinking I'd go to the UN and they'd give me a job. They would pay very little and be far, far away. <laughs> and uh, they said, no, but here's a list of American institutions abroad. And one of them was the American University in Cairo, which had an office across the street at 866 UN Plaza. So I walked across the street and I knew that there was a war in, <laughs> between Israel and Egypt. I'd heard about it, but it wasn't the war that was preoccupying me. And I didn't know that we didn't have any diplomatic relations with, with Egypt at the time. And that there were only like uh, a handful of Americans in the country and that it was essentially a, a Soviet military base. But I walked in and 30 minutes later, they said, can you leave tonight? Well, no, I, you know, I haven't told my parents what I'm doing. I, you know, my girlfriend's back in Boston. I got a pack. Can you leave tomorrow? Yeah, I can go tomorrow. So I, you know, said goodbye to my girlfriend and now, you know, my wife of many, many years and flew to Cairo and taught my first class the next morning. Just to make sure I got it right. In a four day period, you basically went to New York, ended up going to Egypt and then teaching class basically. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, <laughs> yeah. I had, I was teaching English to kids whose English ability was not good enough to get into the university. So there were 14 levels of descending ability and they gave me 13 and 14. <laughs> so I, I walked into 14 at nine o'clock in the morning, terribly jet lagged. And I said, my first words as a teacher, can anybody here speak English? <laughs> and someone said, you do. So that's how I got my start as a teacher. And I loved, I loved that experience. It was great, but it, it, I had no idea how formative it was going to be in my future. And then when I got back in 1971, I went to work for the race relations reporter in Nashville. 
And uh, then to for a series of magazines that went out of business one after another until I got that offer to come to work for Texas Monthly. And that was in 1980. So that was the pathway to this city. Amazing. So, Larry, did you always want to be a journalist? Was that kind of like your goal or it just sort of happened over time? You kind of made your way to it and found you liked it. I wanted to be a writer. I fantasize a bit, you know, writer. I didn't know exactly what that meant. I thought maybe a poet in Greenwich Village without any idea what the rents were in Greenwich Village. And I don't even read poetry, so I don't know what I was thinking. But <laughs> I, I had the idea I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't how to make a living as a writer. And the only outlet I could find was journalism. And I'm so glad that, that, you know, it was inevitable, I suppose, but it turned out that I needed to learn the skills to communicate. And I also needed to be acquainted with the world more profoundly. And there's nothing that does that better than journalism. I agree. Yeah. And so I, I think I sent the email to you when I was asking you to do this because I was, uh, of course, driving you around, which was a lot of my relationship with you was picking you up places yeah. to go other places. Yeah, uh, I missed that. Talks. Yeah, which was super fun. I mean, amazing experience for me. And I was, I forget what year it was. It was around the time my daughter was born. And I was just kind of figuring out that she had autism. You know, my job, I was like trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I was kind of being a whiner. You know, I probably was in the car. And you turned to me and you said, someone will always pay you to do what you don't want to do. And I remembered that so clearly, it like flipped a bulb yep. in my head. And so I kind of wondered, you know, now it's been, gosh, it was at least probably 15 years ago. You know, I wondered, is that kind of what set you on this course is that you wanted to be a writer, you wanted to do, you know, you wanted to do and the path just kind of unfolded. Maybe it wasn't a trajectory you were trying to seek out. Well, there's an apprenticeship that you, you have to go through. And so I spent many, many years learning the craft. And I had some ability, but, you know, to learn how to tailor a sentence and that, that has power in it, to learn how to intrigue a reader from the beginning without cheating on him, you know, that, you know, there are just so many things that, you know, that are skills that I've spent my whole life trying to learn. And that, eventual object is to have enough standing and enough reserves, you know, to do whatever I want. And I'm at that point now, you know, I, I, I made a resolution probably around the time, last time you drove me around that I would only do things that were important or fun because life gives you many options and money wasn't a part of that equation, as my wife has reminded me several times, but, um, but really, you know, I want to be able to write about the important events of our history, but I also want to have a good time right? and, you know, to do, you know, to be all serious without having any joy, that's not something that I was drawn to. So that's, you know, that's the axis of my career. Well, I can't thank you enough. I went back after the week after you drove, I was driving you and you told me that I started a blog that would have been whatever it was 14 years ago. Yeah. And you know, thank you for that. You know, whatever it is, 15 years later now, I'm doing what I want to do and it's super rewarding and I'm getting, I, I feel like I have an impact at least in what I'm working on. So thank you for that, Larry. Well, that's um, great. So 
Larry, I want to go back a little bit, which is, so you're a writer, you go to Egypt, which is foundational, I think, later, right, for the Looming Tower and kind of how you yeah. got onto that. Is that correct? Yeah, but I, I guess the first instance where that turned out to be so formative in my later career is that I wrote a movie called The Siege, which came out in November 1998, you know, just, you know, three years before 9-11, just right after the embassy bombings uh, in East Africa. And it was about what would happen if terrorism came to America? It was just a question that I posed. I mean, it, you could see what was going on in London and Paris and Tel Aviv, of course, you know, you know, cities besieged by terrorism in, of one form or another. And so what happened if it came to New York? And uh, that was the premise of the movie. And because I had lived in Egypt and I was seeing the stirrings of radicalism, I decided that I would make it about Islamic terrorism. And I actually, you know, used some of my own experience with certain people in Egypt to draw a picture of the terrorists that was at the center of it. You know, just before the movie came out, you know, these attacks on America by Al-Qaeda, which I only knew about at the time because I'd been researching. And, uh, you know, I'd heard about the, you know, the mysterious Saudi billionaire or prince as everybody thought he was. And so I knew something about bin Laden, but it was, you know, it, I would never have done that if it hadn't been for those two years I spent in Cairo. And so, Larry, I, correct me on this. I could have it wrong, but I, I remember discussing with you once that you you oftentimes are focused on belief or belief systems. Is that correct in terms of your, you know, your books and reading and what draws you to that? What do you find interesting about it? Well, I was religious. I, mean, I was a pretty pious teenager, so I'd been been there, you know. But it occurred to me at some point as a reporter that the religious belief is far more influential in people's lives than their political beliefs. And I'm sure you know people who hold political positions and their lives betray no evidence of their adherence to such standards. But, you know, if you, are, if you believe strongly in a religion, your whole life is oriented around that. I think as journalists, we don't pay enough attention to it. Because most journalists are skeptics by nature, I think we avoid writing about it because we feel a little embarrassed for the people who believe. And so, you know, we skirt around that. I think if we spent more time actually exploring the source of people's beliefs, that we would understand human behavior a lot better than we do. Yeah. So perfect segue. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, people tend to think of it one way, but then there's going clear in our history, which is a different belief system. And now the last time I had emailed with you was QAnon, right? There's this QAnon thing that's going on. And it's, it's kind of been outed as probably two guys wrote it, one guy in South Africa and another American yeah. guy, but there's still people that are strongly committed to it. I wondered how you felt about that. Do we, how we frame these things or these belief systems? Cause I'll hear my friends talk about, well, they're not like Al Qaeda or they're not like ISIS. And I'm like, well, are they really though? <laughs> you know, because I see guys showing up with guns at protest wearing QAnon banners. We see January 6th. We've got enclaves outside of Dallas where they've had many people arrested that, you know, they're part of it. And I think they, I think they do believe these things. And then we were kind of, you know, those guys don't ignore that. It's not a big deal. I just wondered 
now after two decades, how you felt about these belief systems and how they sort of unwind and how journalists and Americans, how we all treat it. It was too long of a question, but just what your thoughts were as this goes on? Well, there is you know, the thread that runs through all of those entities that you talked about. I mean, Al-Qaeda can be looked upon as a, as a religious cult. You know, it's, you know, I, I talked to the Grand Mufti in Cairo about de-radicalizing people. He had spent a lot of time in the prisons in Cairo trying to pull people out. And he said, you know, the way that people get into these belief systems and then become violent is first they, they become literalist. And then, you know, they, they become fundamentalist. And then they decide to take action. And then they become killers. And so trying to reverse the flow of that, he said, is really difficult. And it is overly ambitious to think that you can move them more than one circle out of the center. Right. And so I think that that, that observation works for a lot of, you know, the kind of cultish things that we see in front of us. I'm not trying to compare Scientology to Al-Qaeda, but there is a similarity in terms of the inculcation of belief. And the object of Scientology is not to commit violence, which is the object of a lot of the terrorists. But with QAnon, I think it could turn violent. Right. And I, I don't think there was a famous book in the 1950s called When Prophecy Fails. And the, a sociologist took a look at a uh, an apocalyptic cult that believed that the world was going to end on Tuesday. And uh, so the question that they were asking is, well, what's going to happen on Wednesday? And so, you know, they spent some time with the members and, you know, the world did not end. And so what happened is we saved the world because of our prayers. So they reified their own beliefs, saying that they were responsible for saving the world. It's very difficult to discredit belief systems because they find a way to justify their existence. And I don't think that outing the authors of QAnon is going to make any difference at all. Just as I feel like Trump is no longer in control of the Trumpistas. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a system of belief that's taken root. And it doesn't need the founders anymore. It, the truth is most of these things need leadership. Somebody has to grab the reins and steer it in a direction. Or otherwise, it just frizzles out. But, but they move beyond their founding fathers. And then they find new adherents who have different perspectives. But, you know, I, I think that these kinds of groups can be extremely dangerous. And I, I know you, you must have looked at Om Shurikyo. Yeah. Uh, I always thought that had the potential of being far more dangerous than Al-Qaeda because of all the engineers and so on that were inside it. But this is the cult that developed around Yoko Asahara, this uh, blind yoga instructor that had 50,000 adherents in Japan and about that number in Russia. And the... The kind of basis for it is these Isaac Asimov foundation right. novels. And, you know, they wanted to end the world, essentially, and just be the only survivors and start over again. Well, that sounds crazy, but they were, you know, they, they 
planning to build, you know, nuclear weapons and they had chemical weapons and, you know, they killed a lot of people on the Japanese subways with sarin gas. I see that same thing going on with some of the white supremacist groups now. Yeah. They essentially want ethnic cleansing and, and they're, I think that the pandemic has provided a kind of template for that kind of thinking, you know. I think biological weapons are something that is very much on their mind. Yeah, the January 6th took a lot of the oxygen, you know, of the discussion. But for the ones that we watch, it's the very intelligent accelerationist, let's accelerate to a conflict, younger men, computer skills, science skills, college graduates, talented, you know, it, it, to a certain extent, they want to bring it down. One of them worries me more than a hundred militia members who are demonstrating, you know, somewhere for, for whatever they see as their cause. There's never been a time where so much information, so many weapons, so much technology can be handed to a single individual in society, you know, to where they can create such right. an impact. And so like Om Shinrikyo, fast forward that 20 years, what could they do with the internet and social media and, and those sorts of things right. the way they are? Yeah. I find that right. very terrifying. So. Talking about Trump and shifting belief systems, you had mentioned Trump is not really even the, the leader of Trumpism in many ways, you, you know, yeah. the way it has unfolded. And he was on stage one day when I was getting ready to do a television spot and he admitted to have, having the vaccine, which he was one of the first ones that had it. And he got booed off his own yeah. stage. I know. I know. And so this brings me to your latest, you know, magic, your work that you've written about the pandemic. I just wondered if you what your experience was, what you learned during the pandemic that maybe changed how you thought about America, you know, in the last couple of years? You know, start with, there was a report, Johns Hopkins and several other entities in October of 2019, just about the time this virus was beginning to appear in Wuhan. It ranked the nations of the world in terms of their preparedness to stop a pandemic. And number one was the United States. Number two was the United Kingdom, you know, right. and out of all the world, you know, we were the best. And, and it, in the event, we turned out to be the worst. We had more people die, more people be infected, more people hospitalized. And this is despite the fact that we invented the most effective vaccines and so on. Why were we rated so high? Because we had all the greatest institutions, the best pharmaceuticals, the best research laboratories, you know, we had so many things going for us. What we didn't have is the civic understanding about our responsibility to each other and the trust that we needed to have in our government and our institutions. And if you look at the countries that have done well, the one of the most striking figures is the elevated trust in their governments and, and in their institutions. And we just don't rate on that scale at all. And so you had countries like Latvia and Angola, you know, I mean, countries you would never imagine would outstrip us. So, but they had something we didn't have, which was they trusted their governments. And I don't know how we're going to close the gap on our weakness until we find a way to create a country that is more trusting and more caring of its fellow citizens. Do you think that's even possible in the way that 
things have kind of gone just in terms of information communication. Do you see a p- pathway forward where this can kind of be navigated? Well, it's going to take some time. It's discouraging to think that a national catastrophe like the pandemic served not to unify us, but to create further divisions. Because you would think that we'd be all in it together and then, you know, but that doesn't turn out to be true. Just as we thought the internet was going to bring us closer together. And the internet, I, I, I feel like the internet is one of the greatest accomplishments humankind has ever created. You know, it's unmatched practically in human history in terms of its importance and its reach, but also its destructiveness. It certainly amplifies the divisions without doing a whole lot to bring us together. But we're not going to get rid of the internet. We just have to learn how to live with the disunion and then find a way to create bridges between different communities. And that's something America should be able to do because we are a very diverse country. When it comes down to it, we seem to be stuck. I think politics has a lot to do with it. Leadership is very important. It's striking looking at at Ukraine and seeing how powerful leadership can be. And Russia in a negative way. Leaders are more important, I think, than people tend to give credit to. I think a lot of times over the past few decades, we've driven the good people out of politics. We need to recruit people that, you know, that you would admire and follow to go into politics and who don't make a career out of exploiting the differences between us. Yeah. I think that's the thing I just encounter the most in DC is pursuing differences instead of pursuing commonalities. So Larry, in that, I don't want to keep you too long, but there are two things I I wanted to kind of touch on. One, you are one of the greatest writers in American history. You know, you write amazing books, New Yorker articles. You, you've you done all sorts of things. You've written movies, you've done plays, one-man show. I remember, you know, back years ago, Hulu has picked up uh, Looming Tower and turned it into a show. Now, though, when you see the move to podcasts like we're doing right now, streaming, all these other mediums. How do you feel about writing in the context of these mediums now? Well, I think that writers and all creative people have to be flexible because the forms are changing. The audience is changing. The other, the, the harder part is that people's attention is scattered and there's a huge amount of competition for viewers, listeners, you know, readers, you know, and that's all good. That, that, that indicates a, a dynamic, flourishing, evolving culture, but you can get a little lost in it. And, and then too, you know, there's a rightful need to bring in more diverse voices, but you know, the, the franchise seems a little smaller for the people that we're used to, to being the center of attention. So all of those things make for quite a tumultuous period, but I think a very fertile one artistically. You are, I'm guessing, probably 50 years in your career almost now at this point. And so looking back, you know, I always try in these interviews I've been doing, give people a takeaway that they can, you know, have or think about. And a lot of people are trying to be writers or producers. Were there setbacks or anything that you would want to tell yourself when you were starting out 50 years ago in your field that has come to you? You know, is there something that you've learned that had you known, you know, when you were starting out, you would have thought about just more reflectively or a setback somewhere in there? Well, 
you know, there were setbacks, you know, like I got fired from my first writing job and that turned out to be very important to me to be kicked out of the nest like that and learn how to fly on my own. And so, I, you know, I wish, I wish I'd made a couple of resolutions earlier. I mentioned the one about, you know, only doing things that were important or fun, but early in my career, I couldn't afford to do that. Right. I had to do what I could to make a living. But there was a, another one of those epiphanies took place in 1990. My wife and I were in Greece and we were in, in the Peloponnese, in Epidavros, a wonderful old spa city, you know, that, you know, ancient uh, amphitheater and so on. And I thought about Greece and what an interesting culture of civic action. You know, they had this yeah. uh, the notion of citizenship was so profound. And it seems that it's been, that, that has been kind of lost or made vague in, in our own culture. And I realized that I wasn't doing much as a citizen. And this voice in my head said, take your place. And, you know, I'd, I guess I'd had a kind of a prolonged adolescence until that point. And I thought, well, I do need to take my place. I want to be the person I want to grow up to be. But now it's time to just be that person and uh, quit screwing around. Be, you know, be the person you really want to be. And it sounds like a tautology of some sort, you know, but I think at that time I was postponing the decision to be the, the person I wanted to be. And uh, I thought, I don't have time to do that any longer. I wish I had made that decision when I was young. And I might have had a different life. I don't know how different it would have been. But I'm glad that I made it when I did because it led me to the rest of my life. Well, I thank you for making that decision. You made a huge impact on me. A lot of us, you know, we were working on that field. We were starting, we were in the middle of the war on terror. You know, we were engaging with the military and Will and another guy named Afshan Ostavar and a couple others called me uh, the first day when we were kicking off and said, hey, everyone gets a copy of the Looming Tower. And I did. I bought a case of it and we distributed it to everybody. And that was kind of like, you know, as new people were coming on, didn't know much. That was our base thing. And uh, the boss at the FBI was like, get everybody one of these books. And so you had a major, you know, impact across all of us. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Larry, I want to close with a question. I actually asked you this question once, and I remember your answer, but I wanted to ask you again, because right. we start off with Texas. You are evicted from America. You cannot go back to Texas. You have to leave after all this time. And you can go anywhere outside the United States for the rest of the time. Where would you go? What would be the place? Oh, I guess, you know, years ago I had a, I was in London and I, in, I had never written a play before. But I went to a theater and I, I've forgotten even what the play was that I saw, but it was in the original the theater where Peter Pan was first produced. And, you know, they have such a tradition of theater in London and everybody knows who's acting and so on. And it's all very intimate. And I thought if I had my life to start over, I would be a playwright in London. <laughs> that was, well, there you go. That's and, amazing. Well, I have become a playwright. Uh, uh, not living in London, but I, you know, I adore the theater. It's just uh, great, great fun. So if I were going to, you know, go somewhere and throw myself into a, a particular life, that would be the one that I would do. That was Lawrence Wright. 
author, screenwriter, playwright, and staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Thanks to Lawrence for giving me some selected wisdom from his career. Selected Wisdom is produced by Sophia James and Steve Lichtig. If you like this episode and want to hear more, make sure to follow and download wherever you stream your podcast. For more details on our guest in this episode, visit our website, selectedwisdom.com, the Selected Wisdom Substack, or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Selected Wisdom. I'm Clint Watts. Thanks for listening.